Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 50, uh, verses 7 through 15. And if you're reading from the Pew Bibles, it's on page 473. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is the word of the Lord. I remember going to this camp as a kid in the mountains of North Carolina. I loved this camp, but we did some weird stuff at this camp. One of the most troubling things for me as a middle schooler was learning and reciting our cabin cheer. Mm. One year we had to sing the Oscar Mayer Wiener song, and I'm telling you that no self-respecting 13-year-old boy wants to sing that song in front of 500 middle school girls. It'd be me and like seven other 12-year-old boys shouting these dumb things at the top of our lungs in front of tons of other people. It was, it was deeply humiliating for me. But every year, it never failed. As the week wore on, and as I began to observe my 22-year-old counselor engaging in this idiotic behavior, the jaws of my own pride began to loosen ever so slightly and progressively throughout the week. And by the time Friday rolled around, I'd lost my voice, shouting, if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, then everyone would be in love with me, at the top of my lungs, and loving it. If my counselor wasn't blushing about this behavior, then I wasn't going to blush either. The more I observed of him, the more comfortable I got following his lead. If he could risk his reputation singing that, then I could risk mine. And by the end of the week, I was having the ball looking like an idiot. This morning, I'm going to risk my reputation just a little bit. But only because my counselor, because my God, has spoken and I, and I want to follow his lead. I want to help us follow his lead as well. I've searched my heart long and hard this last week as I have dug into this text, and I've made, I just want you to know, I've made some hard, concrete choices in my life to change my behavior as a result of this penetrating but joy-fueling conviction of the Spirit through this book, and specifically through Psalm 50 this week. I'm right here with you, church. Weak, needy, vulnerable, standing under the penetrating, convicting work of this book. And I trust the Lord is going to do big things in your heart as he's done in my heart as well. Last week I admitted to you that I was a little bit squeamish about addressing this topic for three straight weeks. But I shouldn't be, and I hope over time we all learn more and more not to blush when Jesus isn't blushing. I just mean to say that we should hold confidently to what he has said, even on a topic as protected, as private, as polarizing as money is. Jesus talked about money a lot. And if you're new, or if this is your first time with us this morning, you should know that this isn't the norm for us. 
This is really the first time, at least in almost the last three years, for the time that I've been at Trinity, that we've ever had an exclusive sermon or sermon series devoted to giving. This just isn't the norm for us here. I just want you to know that. But if this is such a popular, unblushing topic for Jesus, why does it seem so taboo to talk about these days? Well, I definitely think, taboo at least in our circles maybe, I do think that this topic has been abused. I YouTubed pastors asking for money this past week and was met with no small amount of total garbage. The Bible, money, and Jesus have all been abused by greedy men and women for centuries, lining their pockets by leveraging the Lord. We want to stay far away from that this morning. But if we're honest, money hasn't only been abused by charlatans. It's been abused by true Christians. We're guilty too. The way we think of and treat our resources reveals what we actually value in our lives. Not what we tell people we value. Not what we want people to think we value. Not what friends on social media assume we value. Our spent money tells us what we actually value. Someone said, give me five minutes with your checkbook and I will tell you where your heart is. How we spend our resources can reveal idolatry in us. It has in me. Here's what Randy Alcorn says. He says, when it comes to money and possessions, the Bible is sometimes redundant, often extreme, and occasionally shocking. It turns many readers away, interfering with our lives, and it commits the unpardonable sin. It makes us feel guilty. And if we want to avoid feeling guilty feelings, it forces us to invent fancy interpretations to get around its plain meanings. Many of us come to the Bible for comfort, not financial instruction. If we want to know about money, we're more apt to pick up the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or Forbes. Scripture should concern itself with what's spiritual and heavenly. Money is physical and earthly. The Bible is religious. Money is secular. But this just isn't the story of the Christian Bible. It addresses the topic of money more than 800 times. A large chunk of Jesus' dialogue, some people estimate 25% of his dialogue in the Gospels, is related to money in some way. He talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. So let's not blush today about what Jesus doesn't blush about. One quick caveat here. I planned this sermon series many months ago to coincide with the Christmas season so that by grace we'd follow Jesus' generous, sacrificial lead. However, I did not intend or plan for this to fall on the same week of Brandon's email this past week to all you members out there who got that email. Some of you saw that email and you've been putting two and two together and like, my man just wants a big old Christmas bonus. But that's not it, I assure you. Um, I didn't know that the non-staff pastors were going to be requesting that, and certainly not this week. I'm deeply grateful. Uh, Lou and Brandon were the ones that pushed that forward on behalf of the staff. I'm grateful. Um, But today's sermon and that request were in no way tied together, all right? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't even sweat it, all right? Now, today we're not going to be able to unearth everything the Bible has to say about money, unless you want to stick around for all 800 verses. But we are going to take a look in these two weeks at two different passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, to get a high-level overview of what God thinks about our money. So we're going to be in Psalm 50 this morning. Most of us are already there. 
where God addresses the sacrifices of his people. Today, our currency of worship is different. It's money, not sacrifices, but the applications remain the same. So in Psalm 50, we have this courtroom scene. Look at verse 4 there. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. In verse 6 there, God himself is the judge. So in there, in verse 5, if you keep looking, God calls the defendants to the stand, his people. He says, gather to me my faithful ones. And then we come to our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 7, where God sees himself as the chief witness here in this courtroom. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. So once that courtroom scene is established in verses 1 to 7, there comes the indictment in verses 8 to 13. And then the prescription to fix the wrong behavior in verses 14 and 15. So let's move through these quickly and then focus on the practical implications for us as a, as a church family. Right off the bat here, in verse 7, we see that God is not happy with his people. Look at verse 7. He says, listen up, I'm about to speak out against you. Nobody wants to hear those words from God. That is a dangerous, vulnerable position to be in. That's a rough way to start your week. You know what I mean? Hearing that God is against you. Well, what is he upset about? He's unhappy with his people's generosity. And he details some faulty perspectives on generosity. It's the first thing we're going to talk about this morning. Faulty perspectives on generosity. He starts, though, by telling them what he is not upset about. Look at verse 8. Guys, it isn't the sacrifices. You've done plenty of those. You're showing up for worship. You're putting in work. You're checking all the boxes. You're good there. I'm not upset about that. The indictment here is, that, is not that they have neglected to give their sacrifices. The indictment is that they are giving sacrifices with a faulty mindset. We should take a quick minute here, though, and take stock. Some of us wouldn't even get this encouragement from God. God couldn't come to us and say, look, I'm glad you're giving, but you're giving with the wrong motives, with the wrong mindset. He wouldn't be able to say this to some of us because we're not even giving at all. We haven't even sort of hit this bare minimum yet. Maybe you have very little to give, and you think, is it even worth it? Does it make any difference at all? Let's decide the point this morning. God is not put off by the smallness of your offering. If you offer a sacrificially small offering, he is so pleased. Like a mom who gets a handful of dandelions in the dead of summer. So pleased. But maybe you have lots to give, more than the average person. We need to understand that God is not impressed by the largeness of that gift. Like Bill Gates getting a new Lexus for Christmas. What could he care? The amount doesn't matter, but the mindset, the motive, does. Do you have little margin for giving? A big margin for giving. God just desires a grateful heart that's generously responsive to his redemptive deliverance. That is a mouthful, but that could be like the big idea of this text today, the one central idea that you could take away. God desires grateful hearts that are generously responsive to his redemptive deliverance. Well, the people here in Psalm 50, their mindset on generosity is seen in the next few verses, and I think we could sum it up with two basic ideas. First, they think this, 
God needs my generosity. God needs my generosity. The mindset of these people is that God somehow needed these sacrifices or that he was dependent on his people for his food or strength. That's the indictment here. Their mindset behind their sacrifices is an insult to God, as if he's needy or dependent on them. So he says in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Man, this is an extremely prickly sentence. If you're sitting under the condemnation of Psalm 50 as, as a Jew on the other side of the cross. God says that the very center of their religious practice, the sacrificial worship at the temple, the very center of it, of what they do consistently, week after week after week, it's empty and useless for them as long as their current mindset continues. That's because God doesn't need our generosity. God does not need our generosity. Consider these words from John Stott. He says, The riches of Christ are unsearchable. Like the earth, they are too vast to explore, like the sea, too deep to fathom. They're untraceable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, and incalculable. What is certain about the wealth Christ has and gives is that we should never come to an end of it. God does not need our measly generosity. And we see why next. Another faulty perspective on giving is this. I own my stuff. I own my stuff. What we can see clearly here is that the insulting mindset was that the people, we see the, the insulting mindset that the people were on trial for. These people had a view of God that made him dependent on them. They slipped into this really silly notion that their gifts were somehow meeting God's needs and that he would be at a loss without their gifts, their sacrifices. So he's like, and track with me here. Guys, verse 9, let's not get this twisted. I don't need your bulls and goats. And even if I did, I wouldn't tell you in verse 12. Do you know why? Because they're really my bulls and goats. Verse 10, look at it. Every beast, every cow, every bird. If I wanted them, I'd just grab them myself because they're mine in the first place. There are no exceptions. God owns it all. In a very real sense, human beings own nothing. What we call ownership is really just managership. Just, just go with that this morning. From the birds of the air to the bugs of the field to the beasts of the forest, cattle of the hills, and everything in between, it is all God's. He can do with it what he pleases. God could never steal because there isn't anything he doesn't own. A being this independent as God is, independent, it's almost incomprehensible for our minds to take in. I mean, we sleep a third of our lives away. He doesn't slumber or sleep. We stop three times a day, every day, to eat. Unless you're an intermittent faster, then you stop twice a day. Verse 12, he says, If I were hungry, and he's implying that he isn't, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Us, though, we get up early to get our kids to school because they need to learn so that they can grow up to be like us who literally grind it out every day because we need a paycheck so that we can feed ourselves and our kids so that they can grow up and grind it out to be like us or their kids. We are incredibly dependent creatures. God is utterly independent. Our days are shaped by our needs. Money, food, 
sleep, repeat. Money, food, sleep, repeat. Money, food, football, sleep, repeat. Do you know that scientists estimate that 86% of all species are still undiscovered? And God owns them all. As of this year, I looked it up this week in National Geographic, more than 80% of our oceans are unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. 80%. That means that when God was creating, he was just, he's flexing. He was just showing off to the world. And more for his own self than for anyone else, because over the course of the history of humanity, we've only gotten around to about 20% of it. God's bigness is no joke. He doesn't need our generosity. It's not what we own that fuels generosity. It's what he owns. We're not owners. We're just managers. And this should free us up to be more generous because it's not our stuff in the first place. All things were made by him and for him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. It's all God's. There's a real comfort when God is flexing, a sense of settledness when it's all His in the first place. We can step away from the grind, from the hustle to the top, and just sort of let out a contented sigh. It's okay. It's all His. If we have a shortfall this month, He won't. This particular revelation here I think, is the most offensive thing at all to us as human beings. God doesn't need you. However strong and broad and amazing your gifts are, he doesn't need you, but he loves you. If you think about it, for most things in our lives, we love what we need. We love certain kinds of foods and drinks because we need them. We love all kinds of naps because we need them. We love what we need, but not so with God. He loves those that he doesn't need. This ought to fill our hearts with worship, and it ought to fuel our own generosity. God loves me even though he doesn't have to and doesn't need to. So when we're clenching money tightly in our fists, not wanting to give it away, we're borrowing that strength from God. We're borrowing strength from God that he gave to us to hold on to what isn't ours in the first place anyway. He owns it all. And he's completely nonplussed by what we think we own. Anything we offer him is his in the first place. This is why I think it's unwise to compartmentalize our lives. It's all his. It's not just your quiet time that is God's. All your time is his. It's not just your Sundays that are God's. All your days are his. It's not just your offering money that is God's. All your dollars are his. So he is worthy of every bit of our everything for the simple fact that he owns it. It's his anyway, so we should stop acting like it isn't his anyway. He's worthy of it because it's his. This right here is, if you didn't know, a tie. There are a few ties in the building this morning. I didn't need this tie. I wasn't in the market for a tie. I didn't buy this tie, except that I did. Every year, in the first week of December, my kids bring home these brightly colored half sheets of paper in their folders. They're these manipulative advertisements from the PTO 
Is anybody familiar with holiday shop at your public school? A few hands have suffered the way that we have suffered. The basic idea is this, if you're not familiar with it. Please send in an obnoxious amount of cash with your kids so that they can buy you Christmas presents <clears throat> with your money. So we send in the money. And our kids come home with gifts that they bought, that we bought. And all kidding and sarcasm aside, we love these gifts even though we bought them. It almost makes it more special. Our kids know they can't afford gifts for us. So they ask for money to buy gifts for us. They're doubly dependent on us to be generous to us. Does that sound familiar? This gift they don't own and gave back to me right here. This gift they don't own and gave back to me is a gift that means just about more to me than anything in the world. They're so excited when they come to me asking for money to spend on me. That's moving in and of itself right there. You better believe in some small way that I was fully worthy of this tie because I owned it, even though they bought it. We cannot afford adequate gifts for God, so we borrow from Him to give to Him. We are doubly dependent on Him for us to be generous to Him. And here's the amazing thing. The gifts we don't own and give back to Him are wonderfully meaningful to Him. He's pleased with our measly offerings, even though they're borrowed offerings. You better believe He's moved by us coming to Him asking for help so that we can offer Him the generosity He deserves from us. So what should we do if we have fallen into this upside-down mindset that treats our possessions as though they were ours and not God's? That treats God as though He is somehow poor and deficient without us? Well, verses 14 and 15 hold the key in the conclusion today. We talked about some faulty reasons for generosity, and here's some faithful reasons for generosity. Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. If you do have something to give, it is because it belongs to God and he gave it to you. If I have a tie, it's because I gave my girls the money and the license to buy me the tie. All our giving is really God's giving to us. Therefore, all of our giving must be a sacrifice of gratitude to God. Look at the second half of verse 14. He says, perform your vows to the Most High. Vow-keeping. you got thanksgiving and then vow-keeping. Maybe you're not familiar with this. Here's how Psalm 66 describes vow-keeping. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. This is what David says. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. A vow is a promise you make to God when you are in trouble. I read an example of this, of, one, of a vow this week, and it was something like this. Suppose the car mechanic calls you Thursday morning and says, your car needs new axles and brakes. It's going to cost you 750 bucks. You're not Greg Craven, so you can't do it on, a, on your own, so you cringe, and you say, is there no other way? And the mechanic says, no, they're shots. I'm sorry. And you say, well, okay, go ahead, get it done. Might not, might not the Spirit lead you to pray at dinner with your family? Father, would you please get this done? 
more cheaply than the mechanic said, and to make a vow like this, Lord, if you do this, I will give to the ministry of the church or to a needy individual whatever you save or a portion of whatever you allow us to save on this bill. Somehow we are going to live without that extra money when it was going to go to the mechanic in the first place to have a working car. We can live without it now for the sake of the ministry. That's an example of what a vow might look like. Now, I need to be clear here. God never requires us to make vows. He makes that clear in Deuteronomy 23. But faithful generosity, I think, would mean that sometimes we offer God vows. I wonder what vow you could make this week or this year that it would allow you to be able to increase your own generous giving just a little bit. How many subscriptions do you pay for every single month? Do you need them all? Might an eternal investment be worth considering? How many coffees do you buy a week? And if you're feeling the Starbucks pinch from that, let me let C.S. Lewis rub our faces in the dirt just a little bit more here. Why not? He says this, I do not, C.S. Lewis says this, okay? This is not me. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. What vows could you make to God in response to his deliverance of your soul? So faithful reasons for generosity. Thanksgiving, vow-keeping, and now glory-giving. Let's get that C.S. Lewis quote off the screen as quickly as possible. Um, He says this in verse 15. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. As God provides for you, give him glory. Use your mouth, use your wallet, use your energy, use your resources to give God glory. Your generosity should most fundamentally, hear this this morning, your generosity should be rooted in the soil of your deliverance. Your generosity should be rooted in the soil of your deliverance. It was for the psalmist here in verse 15, and it should be for us. Look at verse 15. God says, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. If this was true for the psalmist before the cross, how much truer should it be for us now after the cross? God is worthy of our radical, risky generosity because of his generous deliverance of us. He owns all things. He needs nothing, and in Christ, he gives us everything. Through the megaphone of Jesus' suffering on that cross, God shouts to us, to us, his kids, I love you, and you have nothing to prove. Here's my son. He became poor so that you might be rich. He was generous on your behalf so that every time your ugly, stingy, greedy heart says, mine, I see his generous heart instead of yours. Here's the counterintuitive message about giving from the perspective of the foot of the cross. So put yourself there. And I recognize that this is a weird thing to say in a sermon about giving. But it's the best, most freeing news that you would ever hear in a sermon about giving. You ready for this? Hear this. In order to be loved by God, you have to give zero dollars to God. That is the truth of the gospel. 
That is what those snake oil salesmen, charlatan preachers on TV don't get. The most powerful motivation for faithful, sacrificial giving isn't guilt. It is gospel. It's deliverance. It's the good news that Jesus, for the joy set before him, gave himself for us. God loves joyful givers because it reflects his own joyful heart. He never said that he loves big givers. Never. That he loves joyful givers. I want to say here, too, that we're going to be offering a class sometime in 2020. Some of us are in so much debt that we can't even think about being generous. We want to help you process through that and think about that and help dig in a God-centered way, dig out of that. So stay tuned for that. More news to come on that. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. God loves sacrificial givers because it reflects his own sacrificial son. God never said that he loves big givers, but he loves sacrificial givers. When we begin to grasp that God owns all things, that he needs no things, and that in Christ he's given us everything, our hands can begin to open and loosen their grip on what we arrogantly call ours, God's. When God's generosity jars you out of your comfort zone, it should fire up the engines of your own generous giving. No one has ever been more generous than Jesus. He didn't need anything. He made himself needy by giving up everything. And he became nothing so that we can enjoy everything that God has to offer. I mean, he left the epic joy of heaven for what in today's society would have been like living on welfare. Think about that. The Lord of the universe, he spoke the world into existence, living from welfare paycheck to welfare paycheck so that he might pay a debt so large that all the money in all the world could never pay it. God's generosity to us in Jesus is astounding and it's compelling. In it, we are forgiven. So during this Christmas season, and really all year round, let us not forget that God's gift to us is forgiving us through the life and death of that baby boy. But forgiveness of us is meant to compel our own giving for his glory. God's forgiveness is forgiving for our giving. So let's follow the lead of our generous counselor, our generous savior. God's gospel is meant to fuel our thanksgiving, our vow-keeping, and our glory-giving generosity. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, you were sacrificial when our hearts were stingy. You were giving when our hearts were guarded. You were constantly scheming about how, for all of eternity past, for how to give up yourself for your people. And we just want to say thank you. Jesus, thank you. The, the blood spilt that day on the cross was all we needed. Thank you that we don't need to give a single penny to get your attention. Because... Father, Jesus has given his life so that we can get your attention by way of his life, death, and resurrection in our place. We love you, Lord, because you generously loved us first. Amen.